Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Praise God. God is good all the time. Amen. So have you ever gotten up in the morning and looked at your daily routine, looked in the mirror and thought to yourself, there's got to be more than this. What am I missing? What's the purpose of all of this? I'm tired of being in just survival mode. Right? You wake up, you go through the motions and routines, yet beneath it all there's this nagging sense of just treading water. Maybe 2023 has left you feeling like a hamster on a wheel, right? Running and running and running, but you're not sure where you're running to or even why you're going there. And maybe your 2024 isn't shaping up to be much better. You're waking up to the same dysfunctional family, still playing the role of peacekeeper and referee. Or maybe you're facing yet another semester trying to balance work and school and your social life, and you're serving in church. Or maybe you're stuck in the constant hustle, trying to chase the next project, kind of stuck in this unpredictability of being self-employed. Maybe you're still juggling all of those household chores, all the meals, and your entire family's schedule. Or maybe you've retired quite a few years ago, but 2024 is here. You were hoping it was going to be different, but it really isn't any different than last year. Your days still blend together, right? Some leisure mixed with this longing for the busyness of the past and the purpose of the past. See, I think we can all relate to this kind of feeling, right? This, this kind of um, standby mode where it's like each day is a repeat of the previous day, right? Life with all of its demands and all of its routines can feel like a treadmill, just going, 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 but not getting anywhere, never arriving. And somewhere along the way, our day started to blend into this a blur of unanswered questions and unfulfilled desires. It's as if life is a GPS that just keeps saying, recalculating route. <laughs> See, what we need is purpose. We need purpose. Enter the extraordinary narrative of Saul in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, where we're going to jump in in a minute. Now, a little bit about Saul. Saul was an educated, um, uh, very uh, distinguished uh, theologian, very sophisticated. He was also a Pharisee. 
right? He belonged to that group of men, uh, that group of Jewish men known as the Pharisees, and they were responsible to upholding and enforcing the Jewish law and all of the Jewish customs. See, the Pharisees were the ones who, uh, one of the main players, who saw to it that Jesus was executed on the cross. And then three days later, the disciples started saying that Jesus came back from the dead, and then uh, over 400 people uh, started claiming that they were visited by the resurrected Jesus. He made a bunch of appearances. So Saul, then he starts to hear of all this, and he starts to hear of how some of his fellow Jews are starting to put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, and he gets angry. He gets ticked. See, he viewed this as a threat to Judaism. There's, in his mind, there's no such thing as a dead Messiah because he thought Jesus was still dead. He wasn't believing the almost 500 eyewitness reports. So he became dead set then on eliminating these early followers of Jesus. And this is where we pick up our story. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. So understand that Saul was incredibly zealous in his Jewish faith. But his misplaced zeal brought him to a place of utter hatred for followers of Jesus, for these early Christians. In fact, it was back in Acts chapter 7, just two chapters before this, where Saul oversees the execution of the first Christian martyr by the name of Stephen. See, in Saul, though, this is how extreme he is. He's not just content to persecute the believers, the Christians in Jerusalem. He wants to extend his campaign. He hears that there's a bunch of Christians in this city called Damascus, and he wants to go to Damascus to go drag back and imprison all the Christians that are up there. So this is what we see in Acts 9, verse 2. So he goes to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So out of his own initiative, Saul goes to the high priest and he requests these arrest warrants for these uh, Jesus followers. Now the high priest here is Caiaphas. He's the same one who orchestrated the, the plot to kill Jesus, um, he in, or at least instigated it. And Saul's visiting him, hoping that he's going to get the okay to go to Damascus and persecute the Christians that are there. See, he wants to travel 150 miles. That's how set he is on bringing this uh, growing Christian movement to a halt. He's going to travel 150 miles north of Jerusalem, going right to Damascus to arrest and drag back to Jerusalem all the Christians that are there. Now notice, though, that they're not called Christians. They're called those belonging to the way. What a cool title that is. I belong to the way. See, the earliest Christians took on this title likely because of Jesus' words in John 14, 6. I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And apparently these early Christians, they would identify each other by saying, this is the way. That was a joke. <laughs> not many Mandalorian fans here. See, if you had asked Paul his purpose, his why, why he did what he did in his life, he would have told you it was to stomp out the Christian movement and to make sure that the Jewish religion lives on. That was his purpose. So this passage today, then, 
is going to teach us some principles. We'll call them principles of purpose. And these first two verses then reveal our first principle. And here's the first one. You can be sincere in your purpose and still be sincerely wrong. You can be sincere in your purpose and still be sincerely wrong. See, Saul's purpose, deeply rooted in his Jewish faith, it was sincere, but it was tragically misguided, right? This drive, this relentless mission to extinguish this growing Christian movement, this is what Saul believed to be his purpose. So how ironic it is then that in his quest to serve God, he's actually this whole time been fighting against God. He was sincere, yes, but his... Sincerity was rooted in ignorance and hatred. It wasn't rooted out of a place of of God's love. And this is a reminder to us then that our most passionate endeavors can lead us down the path of destruction. Right? An obvious example of this, this misplaced zeal, um, is the October 7th attacks when Hamas infiltrated um, Israel and killed 1,200 Jews on October 7th. See, Hamas is deeply sincere in their purpose. They are very sincere. They're very sincere in wiping the Jewish state of Israel off the map and death to America. So they're sincere, but obviously they're sincerely mistaken. They're sincerely wrong. They're misguided. But hopefully no one in here will have to worry about terrorism. But So what about the other ways then that we confuse zeal with purposes? It's just these big ways or there's smaller ways. Well, what about in our careers? Right? Maybe you pour your energy and, and your passion into climbing the corporate la- ladder, yet in this relentless pursuit, you let go of the deeper, more important things in life, like your spiritual walk, like Christian community, like service. And what about in politics? We see this in politics too. Unfortunately, it's not uncommon to see Christians, uh, young and old, become so engrossed in these political ideologies that end up overshadowing their spiritual values. See, the the Christian message of grace and forgiveness can uh, get so far buried beneath a voice that's constantly fighting and promoting a certain political ideology or a certain political party or a certain political person. This kind of zeal, though it originates from a genuine place of wanting to make a difference, it ends up creating barriers, and what it does is it diverts focus away from the gospel. So we need to ask ourselves, am I, like Saul, charging ahead with a purpose that I've never even examined? Am I mistaking passion for purpose? Am I getting swept up in these worldly pursuits that they're leading me away from Christ? See, Saul was intent on obliterating these believers in Jesus. His passion was great, but it was greatly sinful and wrong and misguided and aimless. But this is all about to change. Picking up in verse 3. It says, Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground... He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, as Saul approaches Damascus, suddenly this blinding light flashes around him and completely encapsulates him. Now, this isn't just any light. 
This is a light that outshines the sun because we know from other instances in Acts, when Paul, um, Saul becomes Paul and ends up going on and retelling this story, he says that it happened at midday. So it happened right at noon. So this light is so powerful that it brings him to his knees. And the question that follows marks a pivotal point in Saul's life, but also in the history of Christianity. See, this is Jesus himself speaking. He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, we know this is Jesus. Saul doesn't yet. See, I love the way that Jesus is identifying so closely with us, with his followers here, that to say to persecute us, to persecute the church, is to persecute him. It's that union with Christ language. So Saul, still wondering who this is, goes on, verse 5. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you're to do. See, Saul's response here, who are you, Lord, reveals two things. It reveals his confusion, but it actually also reveals the beginning of his transformation. He thought Jesus was dead. Imagine his surprise when he says, "Uh, hello, this is Jesus, the one you've been persecuting. See, Jesus is confronting Saul's misguided purpose here. And notice that this is more than just a moment of rebuke. Jesus doesn't want to just rebuke him. This is a moment of redirection. He's also redirecting Saul into something even greater. See, Jesus doesn't just reveal himself to Saul. He gives Saul a new purpose. He gives Saul a new, a new path forward. God is about to take the greatest enemy of the early church and turn him into its greatest ally. And this moment then serves as a vivid illustration of our second principle, our second point. And it's that your past isn't a barrier but a backdrop for God's future purpose. Your past is not a barrier to what God wants to do in you and through you. It's the backdrop over which he's going to paint the canvas of your story. See, the man we've been looking at here, Saul of Tarsus, is the one that we know as Paul the Apostle. Acts 9 here, this is his conversion story, his testimony of going from uh, a foe of Jesus to a friend of Jesus. In a blinding moment, Saul's life is instantly changed. Once a hunter of Christians, now he's going to become their greatest champion. From breaking into homes and dragging out the believers, now he's going to be breaking into hearts with the message of the gospel. No more is Saul going to be the face of fear when the Christians see him, but he's going to become the voice of faith for the early church. He's going to shift from persecuting to preaching. He's going to shift from rage against Jesus to demonstrating love for Jesus and others. This is not just a change. This is a complete 180, a complete reversal. The sin-stained past of Paul's life is going to be the very backdrop for God's future purposes for him. So here's what this means for you. This means that your past, no matter how marred it might be by mistakes, by misguided purpose, it's not a stumbling block to God's plan. Whatever you think might, in your life that might be a stumbling block is not. Your past is the canvas for a beautiful story of redemption and purpose. So so listen, whatever that thing is, that, that persistent shadow from your past, those haunting regrets, those 
sleepless nights, those whispers of doubt, whatever those things are, they are not roadblocks to God's plan. They're the very fabric that God is going to use to weave together a tailor-made mission just for you. Like the overworked mom who spent years juggling work and family and feeling stretched thin, who now discovers a passion and purpose for counseling others and coming alongside parents and helping them in their busyness. Or the former addict whose journey through addiction and recovery and through finding victory in Christ, how, that, how he became the very tool that God used to come alongside and support and encourage other addicts. Or what about the senior citizen who once felt the sting of loneliness, but now she runs a group, bringing people together for fellowship and prayer and support. See, so don't view your history with regret. Every step, every misstep, and every turn that you've taken is part of a larger story that God is writing. Your past is not a barrier, but it's a backdrop for God's purpose. So Jesus tells Paul to rise and to go into the city where his next steps are going to be revealed. Verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So the other men that Saul was traveling with, they, they also fell to the ground. They also heard this, this sound, this voice, but they couldn't understand the words that were spoken. So all of a sudden, they see Saul talking back to this sound that doesn't have a source, and they're all bewildered, wondering what is going on. Verses 8 and 9. So Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. See, Saul's encounter on the Damascus road leads to a profound moment. He loses his vision. He loses his sight. See, here is Saul, a man who prided himself on his vision of righteousness. He's now blind and he's being led by hand into Damascus, into the very city he was about to storm in and start persecuting the believers. Now he's led by hand into the city, into the very city he intended to crush that growing rebellion. See, his physical blindness here mirrors his spiritual blindness that he's been living in. And the blindness here serves as a pause. This is a full stop in his life's narrative. He was heading one way, he met Jesus, full stop. And Jesus transformed him, and he's now heading a completely different way. See, in this time of waiting here, these three days, this pause, this full stop, Saul's being emptied of his former self. He's being redeemed, he's being renewed, he's being recalibrated and prepared for a new purpose. And this then brings us to our third principle. And that's this, in God's timing, waiting seasons become training grounds for renewed purpose. Waiting seasons become training grounds for renewed purpose. See, as Saul is waiting in darkness, God begins to prepare him. God begins to work on him. Those three days of darkness were not idle moments. They were God's workshop, working inside of Paul. God's, God's transforming him, readying him, for a mission that's going to change the whole world, a mission that he has no idea is about to come his way. And see, we can't forget that the greatest biblical narratives are woven with this whole concept of waiting, right? Abraham and Sarah, they waited years for their promised son. Joseph, 
He endured years in prison before his purpose was realized. Moses, he spent decades in the wilderness before he was able to lead Israel. David, he waited patiently in the fields as a young shepherd boy before he was anointed king. Daniel, he served faithfully in Babylonian captivity, waiting for God's deliverance. And then the disciples waited in Jerusalem after Christ was resurrected, before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on that day of Pentecost changed their lives and the world forever. See, God uses our seasons of waiting to prepare us for his purposes. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord indeed. So if you find yourself in a season of waiting, don't give up. If you're in a season of waiting, press on. Because waiting is not stagnation. Waiting is preparation. Or waiting is not a purposeless pause. It's the platform for God to mold your character, to teach you dependence, and for him to clarify what his purpose is for you. So Saul gets led into Damascus. And while God is preparing Saul, he's also preparing another one of his followers, another one of his children, a disciple named Ananias. Verse 10 says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So pause here for a second. I love how this seemingly minor uh, character in, in, in the story here, Ananias, he's absolutely pivotal in Saul's journey. If this small step of obedience wasn't taken, the whole story would be different. See, because here, what we see is that um, th- this verse reveals that our, indiv- our individual purposes in Christ are all interconnected. Right? My decision to follow Christ is going to affect you, and your decision to follow Christ is going to affect me when we're part of the same family. Our journeys are not solitary. They're intricately woven into, together in, in God's grand plan. So Jesus continues speaking to Ananias in verse 11. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold... He's praying. Verse 12. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So God calls Ananias to what he probably thinks is an insignificant task, certainly a very dangerous and a very scary task. Verse 13. But Ananias answered Jesus and said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. How much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here in Damascus, he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. See, Ananias stands at a critical juncture here. He's an ordinary disciple that's been thrust into an extraordinary situation. And God's call on him is clear, but it's very intimidating. He's to go and visit Saul, that notorious persecutor. Now, Saul's reputation precedes him. Remember, it's 150 miles away from Jerusalem to Damascus, and he's already well-known in Damascus. He's a man feared by Christians, and he's a man responsible for untold suffering. And yet, in these moments of fear, in these moments of uncertainty, Ananias is on the brink of participating in one of the most pivotal events in Christian history, which leads us to our fourth point. Our fourth principle is that the brink of fear is often the birthplace of God's greatest purposes in us. The brink of fear is often the birthplace 
of what God wants to do in us and through us. See, it's often the the case that God's plan for us requires that we confront our fears. Obedience to God often means stepping into the unknown and stepping into the unfamiliar, into situations that might seem overwhelming and might seem scary. I've said it before a couple times, but I'll say it again. It always gets some chuckles because I guess it is kind of funny, but that is like God. So my greatest fear is public speaking. People laugh when I say that. They don't think I'm, I'm tr- it, it's true, but it is. Right? Standing before a group of people, uh, it, it could be three people, it doesn't matter. I, it makes me uncomfortable. When all eyes are fixed on me, it, it's very, very daunting. Right? The spotlight tends to like, trigger my anxieties and like, magnify my insecurities. And if you're like, an anxious person, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But, but here's the twist. See, it's through these very fears where God makes his purpose known. My struggle becomes a stage for God's strength. My weakness, what I perceive as my weakness, becomes a testament to God's power. So what about you? What about you? Where might God be calling you to confront your fears? To step out in boldness and faith. Maybe it's sharing your faith with that friend, that coworker, that family who, uh, that family member who challenges your beliefs. Maybe it's stepping into that ministry role that looks scary and, and overwhelming and it feels too big. Or maybe it's as simple as extending forgiveness to that person who has hurt you and caused you pain. Remember, God does not call the qualified. He qualifies those he calls. He equips everybody that he calls. So whatever your feelings are, your feelings of inadequacy, your fears, your doubts, they're not disqualifications. Don't think that. They're the very places where God's power is perfected in you. So don't shy away from your Ananias moments, whatever those Ananias moments might be. Don't back down when fear intersects with your faith. Step out in courage with the assurance that God is with you. Step out in faith knowing that in the hands of Jesus, you're secure and you're fully equipped for every single good work that God wants to do in you and through you. The brink of fear is often the birthplace of God's greatest purposes in us. See, the encounter that Ananias had with Jesus teaches us that the moments that we feel most inadequate, the moments we feel most fearful are often the moments God is calling us into an even greater purpose than ourselves. So Jesus tells Ananias to go to Saul. He tells him to go to Saul because God is going to use Saul to make a world of difference. Verse 15, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go! For he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. See, what a profound declaration of God's purpose this is for Saul slash Paul. Saul, a feared persecutor of Christians, is now going to be used as an instrument of God. His purpose to carry the name of Jesus before Gentiles, right, non-Jews, so every every non-Jewish person, to the kings and 
to the children of Israel, also to the Jews. Now, this is not uh, any kind of small task. This is huge. This is a monumental assignment, but it speaks volumes about the transforming power of God's grace, that God would take someone like Saul and use him for these purposes is just a testament to his grace. So verse 15 then brings us to our fifth principle, and it's that one person's purposeful life in Christ can make a world of difference. One person's purposeful life in Christ can make a world of difference. See, Saul's ministry is going to go on to have far-reaching effects. He's going to journey across the Roman Empire. He's going to preach the gospel. He's going to plant churches, and he's going to write letters of which God is going to uh, inspire and preserve to become parts of our New Testament. See, Saul's life in Christ is going to make a world of difference. And this principle holds true for you and for me as well. Right? When you align your life with Christ's purposes, your actions, your words, your choices, they're all going to have a ripple effect, a purposeful life in Christ that has the power to transcend boundaries. It has the power to influence generations. It has the power to bring goodness and light to a world that is evil and dark. So let's ask ourselves, how am I using my life to reflect Christ's love? How am I using my life to walk in his purposes for me? In what ways does God want to make a difference through me for the benefit of others? See, now as much of a blessing as it is to be used by God for his good purposes, for his eternal purposes, the reality is that it's not all rainbows. It's not all butterflies. There are real challenges to following Jesus in our day and age. So in verse 15, Jesus tells Ananias to go to Saul, and he comforts Ananias by telling him of all the kingdom work that Saul's going to do. But then in verse 16, Jesus reveals the rest of the story, that a life of surrender to Jesus can also mean a life of suffering for Jesus. Verse 16, Jesus says to Ananias, for I will show him, Saul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. See, though a life lived for Jesus will make a huge difference and will lead to ultimate triumph, there is another principle to be understood here. And the sixth principle is this, that embracing God's purpose is to accept both its triumphs and trials. When you walk in the purposes that God has for you, there are going to be highs and lows. When you said yes to Jesus, when he, he reached out to you, in grace, and you responded in faith to follow him as your Lord and Savior, you signed up for the good and the bad, the highs and the lows, the triumphs and the trials. And then as you continue to live your life in Christ purposefully in him, there are going to be more trials that come your way. Again, Saul's life is a perfect illustration of this. See, his missionary journeys, they were extremely successful in spreading the gospel, but they also involved shipwrecks and snake bites and stonings and beatings as well as a prison time and intense opposition and persecution everywhere he went. See, his story then teaches us that in God's calling, victories and hardship are the same coin, two sides of the same exact coin, victory and hardship. But we can take heart. We can take heart. For one, 
We can take heart because Jesus overcame the world. But we can also take heart because in Christ, even our most difficult times are not just random accidents. They're part of God's plan. He uses them to mold us into the image and likeness and maturity of his son. And here's a key part in this. We're all in this together. We are all in this together. In this family, in this body of Christ, we lift each other up. In this family, we bear each other's burdens. In this family, we hold each other accountable. In this family, we pray for each other and we push each other to walk in the freedom and the victory that Jesus purchased for us in his death and in his resurrection. Amen? See, Saul's about to learn this same lesson. That not only did he receive a new identity, But when he said yes to Jesus, he received a new family. Look at verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house where Saul was. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Not persecutor Saul. Not blasphemer Saul. Not enemy Saul. Not murderer Saul. Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. See, don't you just love this? Saul of Tarsus, at once the fiercest enemy of Christ, is now filled with the Spirit and identifying with Christ through the waters of baptism. Right? He's transformed from adversary to apostle, right? from corrupt to cleanse. He's no longer opposing the first century church, but now he's going to become her greatest champion. This is the power of God's saving grace, church. And this passage, then, is a vivid illustration of our final principle this morning, and a very important one. And it's this. The Spirit fuels our steps, empowering our path of purpose. It's not our self-reliance or our own personal motivation that enables us to walk this path of purpose. It's, It's daily surrender to the indwelling Spirit who strengthens us. The Spirit fuels our steps, empowering our path of purpose. See, the moment Ananias laid hands on Saul, something incredible happened. It's described as scales falling from Saul's eyes, right? So this is a very visible demonstration of a spiritual truth, right? That Saul was regenerated. He was awakened. He was given the gift of the Holy Spirit and went from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight, And Saul would go on then to have a world-changing ministry because he depended on the Spirit to equip him and to empower him. See, it cannot be overstated that the Holy Spirit's role in our life is indispensable. That cannot be overstated. See, it's the Holy Spirit who guides us into all truth. It's the Holy Spirit who empowers us for service. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us strength to face trials and wisdom to make tough decisions. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us the courage to step into unfamiliar places and uncomfortable situations. He is the one who's our constant companion and our ever-present counselor. He enables us to live our lives of purpose for God. So let's be attentive to where the Spirit is leading us. Let's walk 
in dependence on him, letting him renew our minds, letting him transform our hearts and direct our steps and our path forward. Let's walk in the confidence that the same spirit who transformed Saul is the same spirit who's at work in you and me, transforming us and empowering us to be agents of change in the world, all in the name of Jesus. So as we wrap up then, exploring these seven principles of purpose from Acts chapter 9, Let's circle back then to that fundamental question we started with. What is your purpose? Have you met Jesus yet in your life's journey? And if so, are you truly living in his will? Are you embracing his purpose for you daily, depending on him and going to him in prayer, saying, Lord, lead me? Or if you haven't met Jesus yet, what's holding you back? What are the fears or the doubts that you have? You could bring them to God. He's got big shoulders. See, from Saul's encounter here on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9, we can distill all of these principles and all that we learned into this one pivotal truth. And it's that meeting Jesus isn't just your passport to heaven. It's the start of your purpose on earth. Meeting Jesus is not just your passport to heaven. It's the start of your purpose on earth. When Jesus steps into your life, offering forgiveness to you, offering a new beginning to you, it's, it's so much more than just securing a place for you in, in eternity, for when you die. It's absolutely going to revolutionize your earthly existence in the here and now. Your priorities are going to shift. Your goals are going to realign, and your purpose is going to start to become crystal clear. So let's stop searching within ourselves for the answers because the answers ain't there. True purpose isn't found in self-reflection or in worldly pursuits. True purpose is discovered in a relationship with the God who created us. So your purpose unfolds as you look upward. And as you connect with Jesus, as you receive forgiveness from him, as you receive from him his life, a new life, and as you understand his will and align yourself with his good purposes. See, don't get lost chasing personal goals while missing God's grand vision for your life. So I ask you, are you ready to meet Jesus and start living your life of purpose? Are you prepared to set aside your personal ambitions and your personal agendas and to embrace the extraordinary journey that God has for you? Will you step out in faith, trusting him to guide your every step all along the way? See, this is the moment to make that kind of decision, to choose a life of divine, heavenly purpose over a life of mere existence, to embark on the most exciting journey that you can ever take, walking hand in hand with Jesus as your Lord and Savior and as your true guide for purposeful living. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this quiet time of reflection, as we engage you, the creator of the universe, in prayer, confident that you're hearing us and that you know our words, the thoughts on our minds, Lord, and everything that's on our lips before we even speak them. Lord, we come before you now with open hearts and open minds. For those here who have not yet met Jesus, Lord, we pray for their courage to step out 
of those shadows of fear and doubt. And Lord, I ask that they would find in Jesus the forgiveness of their sins, that they would find in him a new life, that they would find in him a purpose for their living. And Lord, we ask that you would reveal yourself to them, showing them the life-changing love and grace that only you can supply. So Jesus, we invite you into our lives, not just as our Savior, but as our Lord and as our guide to a purpose-filled existence. And God, for the saints in this room who do know you, we ask for a clarity and guidance, the clarity of purpose, Lord, and that you would empower us and strengthen us to align our, our walks with your wills. Lord, we pray for the strength to set aside our own plans and to embrace the extraordinary journey that you have prepared beforehand for each one of us in Christ Jesus. Lord, so guide us each step of the way. Fill us with your spirit and lead us to a life that glorifies you. Lord, as we close this, this message, we commit our lives to you. Maybe for some it's the first time. Maybe for others it's just another time. Lord, we thank you that your mercies are new every morning and that you're always in the business of renewing us and and repurposing us and rebuilding us. God, so help us to live for the greater purpose that you have designed for us. And it's in the powerful, matchless, mighty name of our King of kings and Lord of lords. In Jesus' name, all God's children said, amen.